Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles and you'd open up to the book of Zephaniah. So if you don't know what that is or that it was even in the Bible, it is. And I'll tell you, begin in Matthew, first book of the New Testament. Head to the left and you will go about four books over and come to Zephaniah. If you're just joining us, welcome. It's a little bit of an unusual series. We typically teach through books of the Bible verse by verse. But this 12 weeks of time, as we go through a series called The Twelve, uh, called that because these minor prophets were all written on one scroll called the Book of the Twelve. But we are preaching an entire book in one sermon to try to give us a better grasp of the full story of God and the role of these minor prophets, as well as where Christ is uh, in these Old Testament books. Um, they are called minor prophets, as I've said, not because of their significance, but because of their size. Uh, so these 12 prophets are the last uh, prophets of the Old Testament uh, period, uh, and they all speak uh, during uh, a similar time where I've described before the one nation of Israel is now divided in two, uh, Israel and Judah. Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south. And so as you are reading, it's important to understand the context uh, of each prophet, of who they're speaking to and when they're speaking and all those things. Uh, now, like Habakkuk, Zephaniah uh, was called by God to deliver uh, a message several years before Babylon conquered Assyria, who is at the time the reigning empire really in the Middle East or most of the world. Now, Assyria, for its part, had actually conquered Israel. That's the northern part of the once one nation. The northern part had been conquered and really uh, pretty much wiped out for the most part in about 722. And about 20 years later, uh, Syria actually subjugated Judah, uh, well, Jerusalem, uh, about 700-ish uh, B.C. And so they didn't conquer them like they conquered Israel, but they subjugated them and they became uh, basically under their authority, had to pay tribute to them. Uh, but they were allowed to be a vassal state and really have their own kings, though they were under the authority of the Assyrian Empire. And so during that time, which was about 100-ish years, where they were under the authority of the Syrian Empire, but still existing as a nation and as a city, they had several kings, uh, I think about nine during that period. Uh, Ahaz was the first. Uh, and then uh, after Assyria was eventually conquered by Babylon, which we'll talk about a lot today, um, Zedekiah was the king in Jerusalem. And he was really just a puppet king of Babylon, until Babylon decided to wipe out the rest of Judah and really destroy Jerusalem, and then they had no king at all. Now, the first verse in this particular prophet, Zephaniah, tells us who Zephaniah was and when exactly he was writing, which is important to understand. So, Zephaniah, it says, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, which you hopefully or maybe be familiar with as a king uh, at one point. He came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. And so it's interesting to note who God chooses to speak through. And throughout these minor prophets, we've, we have some information about a lot of them and not a lot of information about most of them. But we do know, like, for example, Amos was a shepherd and he, you know, blue collar kind of dude. And then you have Zephaniah, who is the great 
great-great-grandson of a king, Hezekiah, so you got a prince. So God speaks through shepherds, he speaks through princes, he speaks through men and women that we would maybe not see as qualified. He uses all sorts uh, to deliver his message to his people. <clears throat> now, he comes up or rises up under King Josiah. And Josiah was one of the good kings that you may have heard of. He reigned uh, in about 640-ish to almost the end of the 600s, about 609. And he was one of the last, but not the last, but one of the last of those vassal kings under Assyria. Now, he was made king when he was eight years old. And you can read about that in 1 Kings 22, or 2 Kings 22, I believe. But as an eight-year-old, I was talking to my son Hudson about who's eight, what that would be like, right? Running a nation at eight years old. But that's what happened. He followed the reign uh, of a king named Manasseh who had a 55-year reign of idolatry and evil that really upset the Lord. And so he came in, and Josiah became known as a reformer. He wasn't a reformer beginning in age 8, but in his mid-20s, he sent a high priest over to the house of God to do kind of an audit so that they could make repairs. See, get some money from the treasury, give it to the guys who uh, can make the repairs, and let's get the house of God back in order. Now, in that process, the high priest going through the closets, I guess, of the temple found the book of the law, which hadn't been read for a very long time. So he blew the dust off it, opened up basically the Bible, and started reading it and went, uh-oh. So he brought it to King Josiah, and Josiah read it, and he said, uh-oh. And he was really, really upset, so much so he wept, he tore his clothes because he realized we have disobeyed God. My fathers and their fathers have not been obeying God, and God actually promises punishment for disobedience. So he was fearful, he was worried, he was sorrowful, he was grieved, all those things just going, this is horrible and God's wrath is coming. So a prophetess comes, and speaks for the Lord as Josiah's having this experience. It's in 2 Kings 22, you can read it, but it says this, this prophetess comes and says, Thus says the Lord, so speaking to Josiah, Behold, I'm going to bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all of the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. So it basically says, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, Josiah already knows that, he already read that. That's what's upsetting him. And God says, yeah, I'm pretty much going to do that. And he continues, because why they have forsaken me and they've made offerings to other gods, speaking about his own people, that they might provoke me to anger with all of the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, his own people, and it will not be quenched. To which Josiah said, this is not helping right this is making it worse and it keeps going but to the king of judah josiah who sent you to inquire of the lord thus shall you say to him so say this to josiah thus says the lord the god of israel regarding the words that you have heard because your heart was penitent 
and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and because you have torn your clothes and wept for me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. So what did the prophetess say? You're going to die before it happens. Okay? You will have peace. You will go to the grave of your fathers, and it will happen later. But it's going to happen, is what he says. So maybe that brought Josiah comfort. Whatever it is, it inspired him to be a reformer. And he began to make great changes over about 13 years. And it's during this 13 years, at some point, that Zephaniah comes to prophecy. More than likely, it's near the end of Josiah's reign, which means it's about when Josiah's about to die. And if Josiah's about to die, as the word of the Lord said, destruction is going to come. Now, like Nahum and like Habakkuk, Zephaniah prophesies particularly about the future destruction of Assyria, which is also going to result in the devastation of Judah. And that will all eventually come at the hands of the empire of Babylon. And that happens about 612 B.C. So Assyria is conquered, a great empire, conquered by a greater empire. And then a few years later, about 605, they come against King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylon king, comes against Jerusalem. Doesn't wipe out Jerusalem, but surrounds it, besieges it, and then begins to exile the people out. Included in that exile is guys like Daniel. So you probably, maybe, you should have, you should open the Bible and see, Daniel was one of the major prophets. He is deported to Babylon. There's a second wave, eventually, of exile sent. Men like Ezekiel, another prophet. Right? These are real guys who were really during this time. And he was sent. And Ezekiel is one of the prophets, has all kinds of visions. And one of the visions he has is of the glory of the Lord leaving the house of God, leaving the nation. Basically, I'm out of here. God's presence is no longer going to dwell with his people. It is one of the most lamenting, grievous, dark pictures because ultimately that's where God said he would dwell and that's God leaving that place. Babylon eventually, I believe about 530-something, no, 586, wipes out the whole city, including the house of the Lord, completely destroys it. That's why the temple that we talk about uh, in the New Testament with Jesus, it's Herod's temple, but it's part of the second temple because it eventually was rebuilt. But they tear down the walls, they wipe it out. So that is one of the darkest days for the people of God because that was the center of their worship. That is where all their sacrifices were made. That is where God said he would dwell. That was where the high priest would go and engage and, and, and meet, if you will, the glory of the Lord on behalf of his people and atone for their sins is gone. Their identity was wiped out. Their relationship with the Lord was in many ways totally disrupted as they all go in exile. And what we'll see is the last few books, the few minor prophets, are about the time when they return. But for now, they're on the cusp, at least when Zephaniah 
is speaking. He's on the cusp of when everything is going to be destroyed. And those details are really important because we need to understand that the devastation that Zephaniah talks about comes very quickly. And it comes at the hands of Babylon. And what comes is utterly devastating. As the Lord says in the first verses of Zephaniah, I'm going to utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Now he's speaking in many ways to his people largely, declares the Lord. I'm going to sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. So he's speaking to his people, but he's also speaking to the whole earth and what is going to happen to mankind and also the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, Zephaniah, more than any other prophet, more than any other book in the Bible, speaks about this thing called the day of the Lord, the coming of the day of the Lord. You can imagine the people with the big signs saying the day of the Lord is near type of thing. This is kind of who Zephaniah is. He warns of the nearness of this great day that is coming when God is going to punish and destroy and otherwise judge the whole earth, all mankind for their sins. The day of the Lord is not just in Zephaniah, it's throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus himself speaks about it. And it's characterized by this pouring out of divine wrath on God's enemies in the world and the fake faithful among his own people. We don't talk about the day of the Lord that much. Unless we're going through the minor prophets, perhaps, or maybe the end of the book of Matthew. But throughout the Old Testament, this word or this phrase comes up. Zephaniah comes up a lot. He mentions the day of the Lord more than any other prophet 17 times from chapter 1, verse 7 to chapter 2, verse 3. And the way he describes it is shocking. Now, this is the word of the Lord coming through his prophet. So the way God describes his great day that is near is shocking. Pretty severe language. The great day of the Lord is near. It's near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. And then it just gets worse. The day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. Now, the day of the Lord. Speaking to Judah, they're speaking to something that is very present, very near, at the hands of Babylon, conquering Assyria, and them being conquered as a result. And while the day of the Lord is actually, in this case, pointing to an actual moment in history, even if it's a moment that's extended over several years, whenever the day of the Lord is mentioned in the Bible, even here in Zephaniah, it is sometimes difficult to determine whether reference is pointing to an imminent historical fulfillment or if it's talking about a future great day that is yet still to come or both. 
And so as we read this, you're like, okay, there's a day of wrath that was there, but there is also a day of wrath yet to come. Because the way Zephaniah describes that day can make sense in some part of what the Jews experienced at that time, but not make sense in some of the ways he describes it in the future. Now, the great day of the Lord did come. The day he talks about, the day of destruction, the day of wrath where God's people were exiled and the house of God was destroyed and the nation that once was ceased to exist. That day came, but there is another day coming. And it is coming because of mankind's sin. Man's refusal to obey God's word, which began in the garden. Man deciding, I'm going to determine what I believe is right and wrong. I am not going to believe that God is trustworthy. I'm not going to swear allegiance to the God who made me. I'm not going to thank him or acknowledge him for who he is. See, I find that today many Christians really embrace the word brokenness to describe their sin. It's not a bad word. I think it's an accurate word, but it's an incomplete description of what sin is. It is brokenness. We are weak. We have fallen short, but let us not be mistaken. We're also rebellious, hostile enemies toward God. That we are unable to change, and in many ways, we are unwilling. That is what sin is. And so God says, I'm going to punish sin, and I'm going to punish sinners. And in Zephaniah, he uses very stark language that we don't probably spend too much time in our devotionals studying because it's disturbing. I'm going to bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. That's the reason. Their blood is going to be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. That is mankind, not just the Assyrians. In view of this day, more than once you have God's prophets, including Zephaniah, declaring woe. You heard Jesus using that term, woe. Woe to the Pharisees. Woe to you. Woe to you. And you're like, why use woe? We don't talk about woe, like unless you're thinking of Keanu Reeves, right? Oh, but no, it's like woe, W-O-E. Well, what is woe? Woe is not just like, woe. Woe is like, woe to you because there is a grievous destruction that is coming and that is inescapable. So when you hear woe, that's a heavy statement, especially from the, hand, uh, the words of the Lord. Woe to you. And so he says woe to different nations. He says woe to different peoples. And he really says woe to all mankind. Because man believes, I, I could probably get out of this. I could probably escape God's punishment. But so that we're not mistaken... God says to Zephaniah, don't think you're going to find a savior to escape from this. At least not in the world. He says, neither silver nor gold is going to deliver you on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for the full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. I'm not sure how often we believe and live as if we believe that the end is near or that there is even an end i think if we 
are given a mortal diagnosis, we tend to believe for a second that there's an end. But God tells us you should be living as if there's an end coming. Now, neither gold nor silver, nothing's going to be able to help you escape the wrath that's coming or ransom your soul. You're not going to be able to pay God off. I'm surprised how many times my kids, in order to get out of trouble, go, okay, I'll pay you a dollar. Like, why do you think I want money, right? But it's such a clear picture of like what we think, like, well, what do you want me to do, God? And you know what he says? Too late. That's disturbing, I realize. But he says an end is near. And here's the most disturbing part, ready? Zephaniah is coming. He's rising up saying the end is near during Reformation. During spiritual revival. Where all things are going well, it seems. Josiah made some incredible reforms. He took God's word seriously. He chopped down altars. He broke down the metal images that had existed he cut down false idols. He purged the nation of all like the immorality he could find. And people repented. He even reinstituted the Passover, which hadn't been observed for nearly 400 years since the days of Samuel. Like, that's how far the people had gone. And yet, during this spiritual, moral Revival. Zephaniah steps up and goes, the end's coming. Now wouldn't that make you go, wait, wait, what? And your response would be, but we're doing so good. That should be a little disturbing to us. I think if you asked any number of people, believe it or not, is there a heaven? the majority of them, a very large percentage, would say yes. And if you followed up that question with, are you going to heaven? The majority of that majority would say yes. And if you followed up that question with another question, like why? The majority of that majority would say, because my good outweighs my bad. What we see here is that our salvation may not depend upon our goodness. It's interesting, even in the midst of these reforms, back in 2 Kings, they start reforming, they start doing all these good things, and God even says it back then. Still the Lord did not turn from his burning of his great wrath. He's still angry against Judah. Because of everything Manasseh over 51 years had done. He's still angry. So, what do we learn from this? Well, if nothing else, we see that sin matters much more to God than it does to us. We may find it, and we'll never admit this, but we may find it quite easy or convenient to forget our sin, to overlook our sin, but sin matters to God. 
Spiritual revival is always a good thing. We should always celebrate that. We should always desire that. We should always work to reform that we might be more godly and pleasing. Yes, that is a good thing, but real reformation doesn't necessarily stop deserved retribution. Justifiable retribution. The law is pretty clear. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But it did a lot of good. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, this was the case with Judah at the time. Right? They were, they were doing a bunch of good. They had been bad for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they thought, well, you know, we're in revival. This is good. And Zephaniah says, not good enough. Here's a secret. There isn't a good enough. And that's the same for the rest of mankind. Here's the bad news that the good news helps us with. The greatest good that man might do is never enough to save him. And any bad, the smallest bad, we go, oh, adultery is horrible. Well, what about coveting? What about pride? Any bad that we have done is always enough to condemn us before a holy God. We need something else to save us other than ourselves. We need someone to save us other than ourselves. Praise be for Jesus Christ. Now, we don't believe that. Here's what I mean. As Zephaniah goes on, in the second chapter particularly, he begins to identify really bad people. He identifies objects of his wrath that everyone would agree with. He identifies nations, Philistines, right? Think Goliath. We're going to pound on Israel all the time. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites, the Assyrians. He names them. He's like, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. I'm going to lay all of your nations to waste. These are the token bad people who have done measurably bad things. And we would say their punishments are deserved. And weary of their wickedness, God says simply, as I live, Moab's going to become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. If you don't know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, they pretty much became asphalt. So that's what he's saying. Your land is going to be possessed by nettles and salt pits and be a waste forever, which is literally what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's like, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm, I'm tired of it. I have a long wick and the burning is up. And so... Knowing these peoples, they're comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And knowing, you read historically what the Assyrians were like and the cruelty and the, just the brutal way they conquered people. We, we look at them, we go, well, I've, that condemnation seems pretty just. I mean, your evil is pretty obvious. There's a little verse in 1 Timothy. It's really interesting. 
He says, the sins of some people are quite conspicuous, going before them to judgment, like, now that's obvious why you should be judged. But the sins of others appear later. We're really good at hiding our sin and looking good, but God sees the heart. And that, my friend, is what he judges. Now, judgment, as we read in Zephaniah, is not just for the obvious enemies of God. He actually promises to punish his own people. He says, actually at one point, the word of the Lord is against you. And if you count, which I don't think you should because you're not nerdy like me, but if you count, you will see that the words that are against the Ammonites and the Assyrians are the same number of words in this prophecy that he says against Judah. So word judges all. Whether you are the so-called people of God or you are the obvious enemies of God. And so there are three kinds of people that God judges here, right? He judges those who clearly worship false gods, unapologetically. He also punishes those who believe or worship false gods as they worship the true God. And then there are those he punishes who are worshiping the true God, but speaking lies about him pretty much becoming a false god. Now, without doubt, as we see, he warns the pagan nations who worship false gods. But what we see is that not only is there judgment coming, in whispered in all of these prophets is this promise of salvation. He speaks about a remnant. Now, the remnant are... I guess best described as those faithful few who are kind of left after a catastrophe. And in this case, they have always existed, but they've existed as a faithful minority in the midst of an unfaithful majority. Right? The very implication of a remnant is not just those who are left over because the remnant exists right now. It's the fact that most people are not the remnant. The majority of people are actually unfaithful. What that means is that there are a number of so-called worshipers, if you will, who identify as God's people at this time who actually don't know God. And though we cannot see the heart, God sees all. And though we should never begin to evaluate who's in and who's out, God knows everyone. There will be those on the day of judgment who are exposed as false. And God clearly condemns, as I said, the enemies who worship false gods. But what about those who worship false gods as they pretend to worship the true God? In the very beginning of Zephaniah, there's a verse in him speaking to his own people, describing this kind of person that he is bringing under judgment. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom, also known as Molech. Anyone know who Molech is? 
Molech is the god of the Assyrians to which they would sacrifice children. So he's condemning his own people who swear to God, the true God, as they are swearing to this false god. Now, maybe it surprises you, maybe it doesn't, but there are many so-called believers like that today. And though I can't judge the heart, they're probably represented by the kind of people that recently there was an actress who received a nice little golden statue for her performance in some movie. I would argue she thanked God and she thanked Molech at the same time in her speech. As she thanked God and then celebrated her decision to murder her child so that she could have the success. And that's what you're talking about. People who talk about God, worship God, they're like, wait, what, what? The other people God condemns are those who believe wrong things about the true God. He says, at that time, I'm going to search Jerusalem with lamps. I'm going to punish men who are complacent, apathetic, doing nothing. Saying a lot, though, the Lord's not going to do good, nor is he going to do ill. The Lord's going to do nothing. Which is the very opposite of what the Lord says. I'm going to save, and I'm going to judge. On the whole, Zephaniah describes this. So, This is him describing his own people. I believe it's the beginning of chapter 3, but I'm just paraphrasing it here. He describes them as those who refuse to listen to any voice but their own. Those who accept no correction. Those who do not trust in the Lord to draw near to him. Who do they trust in? Themselves. Which was the very problem in the Garden of Eden. He says, look, you guys got prophets and you got priests and you got kings. You have all what looks like you should have. But your prophets are evil. Your priests are profane. Your kings are wicked. In many ways, you know, he speaks exactly as Jesus speaks. He warns about the great day to come often. And he simply says this through parables and then through just plain teaching. That that there are those who right now identify as God's people, but in the end will be revealed as unfaithful servants who ignored the plain truth of God's word and live as if there is not a day of reckoning. That what they do in this life and what they do now doesn't matter. We're reminded simply in Zephaniah that there is a false majority that God judges and there is a faithful minority that he saves by grace, a remnant. And what's interesting is that there's these two things happening at the same time, judgment and salvation. He says, I'm going to cut off the nations and I'm going to gather a nation. He says, I'm going to pour out my righteous anger on all the kingdoms I assemble, and I'm actually going to create a new kingdom of people who will worship me. Zephaniah writes, there will be 
on that day, not just judgment, but a moment where he will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, and that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. Sounds like the every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be a day when all call upon the name of the Lord. We go, what is it? What is call upon the name of the Lord? What, what does that mean? Well, we know um, it doesn't mean, or it can't possibly mean, just to call yourself Christian. And to identify as an evangelical. Those who call upon the name of the Lord are those who look to God alone for their salvation, not to themselves and not to anything else. You know, Jesus is the one that warns us. There's lots of people on the day of judgment who are going to say, Lord, Lord, we did all kinds of things in your name. And he's say, I never knew you. Well, so it can't just be calling myself some label. I believe to call upon the name of the Lord is to fear God and to submit to his will. It is to believe in his radical grace. It is to be baptized, meaning you identify in all ways and you seek his kingdom first as you surrender every part of your life to him and live every part of your life for him. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And we know because of how Zephaniah describes this day that comes, while the day of wrath that has come, the day of like full wrath or complete wrath or complete, like that hasn't come because the kingdom he describes doesn't exist yet. At least practically on earth. Right? Israel continued from this time to be in submission to different powers and through Assyria, Babylon, Rome, and others. But the kingdom Zephaniah describes is a kingdom where all enemies have been defeated, where lies and injustice have been removed, where pride and rebellion have been completely vanquished, and the only thing that remains is the humble and the lowly. This is how he describes it. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. It's a beautiful moment he describes where there's no tears and no temptation and no brokenness and no rebellion and no suffering and no death. But we know that that day hasn't come, though a day came... And we see in the book of Revelation that really Zephaniah's end times imagery finds its fulfillment on the great day of wrath of the Lamb. We don't think of lambs and wrath. If we've read our Bibles more, we might. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, what are they doing? They're hiding in caves and among rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. From who? From the wrath of the lamb. Right? 
We always think of Jesus, the lamb, the lamb slain before the final, the lamb who takes away the sin. Yes, and the lamb who brings wrath. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? See, in view of what is a certain day of judgment for sinners, God actually calls us to hide. It's interesting that these kings and generals and people are, oh, let's hide. God actually invites us to hide in him. See, nestled in the middle of Zephaniah. So you read, and really it's like, oh, a real uplifting sermon. Jeez, day of the Lord, wrath, all this stuff. Like, that's what the minor prophets are like. But in the midst of it, there's these little eggs, little golden nuggets. So if you read Zephaniah 2, 1 to 3, in the midst of all this darkness, it's God's final plea. And he says this, gather together. Yes, gather O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before, before the day passes away like shaft that is burned up, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of anger of the Lord. A lot of befores. Urgency, come on. Seek the Lord before it comes. All you humble of the land who do his just command. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden. Not hiding yourself. Hidden by him on the day of the anger of the Lord. Right? The day of wrath, historically speaking, practically speaking, it came for Judah centuries ago. But brother, sister, there is a day yet to come. There is a last day. The day of the Lord when Jesus returns and the world as we know it comes to an end. And the thing about it is years pass by, both non-believers and believers go, really? How long has it been? And you won't be the first people to ask that question. It was asked a long time ago. Decades after Jesus rose from the dead. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? That's ah, not going to happen. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing, like things are going about. You know, Jesus says, by the way, it's going to come like a thief of the night and life's going to be normal. He goes, remember the days of Noah? These people were working and getting married and all these things and then Boom. Rain, 40 days, floods. That's what it's going to be like. Things are going to continue. And he says, but the Lord's not slow. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. He's patient. Patient towards you, especially you who do not believe. He's patient. He's waiting for you to turn from Ways that are not satisfying and are wicked. And to receive his forgiveness and receive his love and be saved from the wrath to come. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. 
and the heaven bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that have done it will be exposed. Everyone will be shown for what they actually are. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? Hold on to that. Waiting for the hastening and coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. In view of this coming day, God's plea to Israel is the same to us, namely, seek the Lord. Seek righteousness, seek humility, surrender that you might be hidden from his wrath. And here's the thing about it, to go back to that. Okay, I'm going to live godly. I'm going to live holy. I'm going to do right. Zephaniah came during Reformation. In other words, even if we repent, even if we experience a spiritual revival, which I hope for and desire and we should aim for, left to ourselves, if your salvation is dependent upon your ability to live a holy, godly life, you will be damned. You will fall short, as I do, as we all do, and you will not be able to save yourself by your godly living. That's not enough to hide you from God's wrath. Did you know that Zephaniah's name actually means the Lord is hidden? And reminds us of a simple truth. We all need and will desire to hide from God's wrath when it comes, but only those who believe in Jesus will be hidden because you'll be hidden in Christ. Try as you may, there's not enough good in you or me that can ransom or save your soul. No one is going to stand in the face of God's wrath, but there is one. There is one who endured the full wrath of God for your sin and for mine. There is one who took all of the wrath for you, who died and rose again, that he might be the only one who can save you from death and offer you eternal life. In other words, the only way to face the wrath of God is to hide yourself in Christ. This is what Colossians tells us. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on earth, for you have died. There's been a death. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. His return will be nothing to be feared, but to embrace and to rejoice over. And when he appears, Zephaniah, I think, describes the day pretty clearly. He says, the Lord has taken away judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And on that day shall be said, Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. You realize that we worship a God who does shout, who does get angry, but he also sings. 
Jesus said there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so as you imagine that gathering, when all the repentant and the humble and the poor in spirits gather before God, what do you imagine him doing? What do you naturally see your mind go? Is, is it disapproval? Is it, oh, well, come on in. Is it him looking and frowning at your guilt, but, well, I forgave you, so I'm going to gloat over my grace. You're lucky you made it. Is he going to ignore you and look over your head at someone who you think is more deserving to be there? Not interested in you, really? Is he going to grieve that there's just not that many people? That the flock is so small? None of those things. He is going to rejoice, not just over us, but over you. He's going to celebrate you. He's going to exult over you with singing and go, man! Like when a bridegroom receives his bride, when a father or mother receive their prodigal child back, they don't go, hmm, you're back, huh? Told you so. I know. Get in. It's yes! You're here! It's not how you run the race. It's that you finished. Doesn't matter what place. Doesn't matter if you stumbled or crawled to the end. He's like, you're here. It's an embrace. It's a singing. And what a glorious day that will be where he doesn't just say, my church is saved. He says, Bob, Tina, Mark, Sam, Betty. I'm trying to make up names, right? He says your name. Some of those are real. And so instead of that day, which is the message of Zephaniah, for those who are in Christ, for those who have said, I surrender, Lord. Your son took the wrath for me that I deserved, and you give me the righteousness I don't. The day of the Lord is nothing to fear. The day of the Lord is something to long for. It is something to wait for, and it is something to live for. The day of the Lord. That's the message of Zephaniah. Let's pray.